there was once a well-known, widely written uh, professor of Christian theology who was rather world famous. His name was recognized in Christian circles around the world. Well, a, a time came one day when he had a student that wanted to come by his office at home and pick up a book from him. So he, the student came to this professor's house expecting to find a house that wasn't necessarily luxurious or lush, but nonetheless very much adequate because again, this was a person who was known worldwide for all of his Christian writings. So he shows up at the, at the professor's house and was quite surprised by the, the, by the humble setting of his house. But then he goes in, is in he's invited into the professor's study. And he comes into the study and he finds something that surprises him. He finds that there's no furniture there. Instead of a, a, a nice custom walnut desk, which is what he expected to find, he, he, fought, he saw that the professor's desk was actually some old planks that were supported by some cinder blocks on either end. And for drawers, the professor had some of the stackable plastic Walmart drawers that he kept his things in. And then for the books, he expected to see all these custom-made, fine bookshelves on the walls, but he found that not only did he not have any bookshelves, but his books were all stacked on the floor in, in piles, hundreds of books just stacked against the wall in piles. So the student starts to think that perhaps the professor is waiting for the arrival of some custom furniture that he's ordered and, and is going to be coming any day. So he asks the professor, where's your furniture? And the professor shocks him by asking, answering his question with another question. He said, well, where's yours? The student was rather surprised to say, where's my furniture? This, this isn't my study. I'm just stopping by here for just a few moments. To which the professor answered, so am I. There is something sweet and delicious about saving the best for last, isn't it? That's a, a, a habit of life that's helpful in all kinds of areas, whether you're talking about an activity or a dessert or whatever you're talking about. Saving the best for last has a certain sweetness to it. Delayed, grati delayed gratification is something that, that all people should practice in their lives. God has not only saved the best for last for us, but we've also saved the best for last in this sermon series. We're in a series called The Afterlife in which we are looking at every, not every, but almost every aspect of the existence that comes after this one. We've spent five weeks now looking at various aspects of the existence after this one, and each time we've found that for the Christian, for the one located in Jesus Christ, what comes after this existence is nothing but complete pleasure, things to be completely anticipated, total satisfaction, Everything for, for the Christian, for the next life, is something to be looked forward to with great delight. We saw that even beginning with physical death, which initiates the next existence for the, for the believer in Jesus Christ, physical death is not a curse, it's a blessing. Then we looked at the intermediate state, the, the period of existence between physical death and the bodily resurrection that is to follow. And we saw that for the believer in Jesus Christ, we saw that they're engaged in in activities in which they're engaged not only with other saints, but also very much so with God Himself. And we saw that to be a time of great pleasure and great delight as well. Then we looked at the resurrection. The moment in which we will begin to live as we were intended to live all along. As body-soul creatures. With a sinless soul united together with a body that is free from the taint of sin. None of us has ever existed in that state yet. 
but the resurrection is the moment at which we will begin to exist in the state in which we were intended to exist all along. That will also be a moment of pure joy for us. Then we saw that the day of judgment will also be a time of tremendous joy and happiness for the believer because the believer will witness billions and billions of times over and over again the righteousness, holiness, majesty, mercy, and grace of God will be demonstrated as each human who has ever lived will stand before God in judgment of what they have done. The glory of God will be on full display on that day. The Christian will see what we long to see, which is every knee bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we even saw last week that that even the atrocities of hell will not detract from the eternal happiness and joy of the one located in Jesus Christ. But today we arrive at the long-anticipated topic of heaven, the eternal state. This is what we've been building up to for six weeks now. And we're going to take the next three weeks to flesh out the topic of heaven. We're remembering our curtain analogy. Remember that? We've talked about how physical death is like, a, is like this curtain. God has told us some things about what's behind the curtain, but He's not told us everything. He's told us He doesn't want us to try to peek behind the curtain and see for ourselves, but rather He's told us to be content with what He has told us of what's behind the curtain trusting Him with what He hasn't told us of what's behind the curtain. So we have that analogy in our mind, but even as we're thinking of that, we're reminded of the fact that the Scriptures tell us more about this phase of our existence than any of the others, in fact, all the others put together. The Scriptures have more to say about the eternal state of heaven than it has to say about any of the things we've talked about so far. Physical death, the intermediate state, the resurrection, any of those things. Scripture has quite a lot to say to us about the eternal state of heaven. So much so, that we're going to take three weeks to take it apart, and even then we're not going to cover everything that the Scriptures say about this. So I'm going to navigate through the next three weeks in this way. Today we're going to talk about heaven, the place. And we're going to look at the sizes, the dimensions, the materials, the physical aspects of what we're told about for heaven. Next week we're going to look at heaven, the people. We're going to look at the people that populate heaven what they are like, what they are not like, what they can do, what they can, cannot do. And then lastly, two weeks from now, we'll look at heaven, the activity. That will, that will be a time in which we look at the, what the inhabitants of heaven are engaged in, what sort of activities uh, occupy their time, what will we do for eternity, what will our lives be like in that existence. So of all of the messages in this series, I think that these next three are the three most important ones, and they're also the three most interesting ones. So... Grab hold of your sermon notes. This will be fun. We are affirming a biblical view of what comes after this life, but we're also anticipating what comes after this life. And so the next three messages, I think, will create a great sense of anticipation because I think anticipation for the eternal state is something that's not difficult to create within the Christian. So we're going to look at heaven for the next three weeks, but as we do so, what we're going to see, increasingly so, I think, is that heaven is like a paradox for us. It is a paradox for the believer in this life in the sense that on the one hand, we're going to talk about a place which none of us has ever seen, none of us has ever experienced. In fact, words don't exist which are capable of describing it. And so as we go through the topic, we'll find that it is is a topic that is increasingly difficult to even put into words or even to imagine what it's like. On, On the one hand, It'll seem almost like a combination of science fiction and childhood stories. But on the other hand, 
if you are a born-again child of God, then as we talk about heaven, you will sense a feeling of connection to what we're talking about. Even though we're going to talk about things that you've never seen and you've never experienced, you will find a connection to those things that will be difficult for you to put into words. It'll be as though we are talking about your home, even though it's a home that you've never visited or never seen. That's the paradox of heaven. For the child of God, it cannot be described, yet at the same time, it feels like home. Scripture tells us that we have an inner connection with heaven. We were all made for heaven, and heaven was made for us. And it is our eternal home. And so we have this inner connection to it, even though we've never seen it, and we cannot even imagine it. C.S. Lewis writes about uh, how the fact that Christians are, in, we have this inconsolable longing for news from a country that we've never visited. Malcolm Muggeridge will write about a sense of being a stranger in this world and sensing that he really belonged to another world, even though he's never been in another world. The, uh, those Christians put it that way. This is how Scripture puts it from Hebrews chapter 11. Speaking of Abraham, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham left everything to become a nomad because he had such a strong connection with something that he'd never seen, imagined, or even been told about. He just felt a connection to that. And that is so with the child of God. If you can grasp what I'm saying to you now, then over the next three weeks, it will seem to you as though we're talking about something that's so foreign and so strange and so disconnected that um, if it seems to you as though we're talking about something that's not even reality to you, or something that is so separate from who you are, then I would say to you now at the offset that, that that's, a, that's reason for great concern. If everything that we're going to say about our eternal home seems foreign to you, then you have reason to be concerned. If on the other hand, what we say about heaven instills or, or sort of fans the flames of this inner sense of connection that you have to that, then I would, I would take that as a, as a sign of, of blessed assurance that there is a home created for you and you are created for a home and your inner being is sensing the connection to that. So with sermon notes in hand, let's begin this morning by recognizing that there are three places in our Scriptures that tell us specifically and extensively about our eternal home of heaven. Two of those places come in the Old Testament. One of them comes in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we find Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah writes a number of verses here, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah about heaven. And in that passage, that's a passage about God creating new heavens and new earth. And that passage goes on to tell us about the peace and the tranquility of that place. Um, that's, that's a place that talks about, <clears throat> and that's a place in Scripture that talks about the peace and security, about how we'll build houses there, we'll have vineyards there. Everything will be peace and safety. We won't labor in vain. Uh, and that's the passage that we, we know of, the, the uh, well-known passage that, that speaks of the wolf lying down with the lamb. That's a passage of peace and tranquility. We'll look at that. We'll reference that a couple of times today. 
We'll look at that more in the, in the coming lessons, particularly two weeks from now, we'll look at that passage. Another passage that comes from our Old Testament that speaks to us about our eternal home comes from the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 1, a passage known as Ezekiel's wheel. In that passage, Ezekiel is given a vision of heaven, and in this vision of heaven, he sees four living creatures. Each of those four living creatures have four faces, and each of the living creatures have four wings. And then he sees a vision of these four living creatures moving about, and they never turn as they move. And then his vision goes to a wheel. In fact, it turns into four wheels, and each of the four living creatures is associated with each of the four wheels. And then, in Ezekiel's vision, he sees heaven opened up, he hears trumpets, he hears the sound of many roaring waters, and then the throne of God comes forth from heaven, the four living creatures drop their wings, and Ezekiel bows in worship. And that's the vision that Ezekiel is given of heaven. We'll reference that as we go through the next couple of weeks as well. However, we're going to spend the bulk of our time in the Bible's premier passage to tell us about details of the existence that we know of as heaven. This comes from the only book of our Bibles that's written from the perspective of heaven. Of course, John's Revelation. So go ahead and grab your Bibles and find Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. The entire 21st chapter and the first part of the 22nd chapter deal with the reality of heaven. Uh, so as you're looking for that, that's easy to find. Just look for the last chapter of your Bible and go backwards one chapter. These two chapters are crucial and highly informative for us to tell us about the reality of heaven. In fact, we'll spend three weeks looking at this passage, and even then we're not going to cover everything that it says to us about heaven. So Revelation 21, Revelation 22... You'll, you'll notice the fact that Revelation 21 comes after Revelation 20, which is a, a rather astute observation on my part, right? But actually that's important because Revelation 20 is the final judgment which follows the resurrection. So heaven does not begin until after the final resurrection. Heaven begins after hell is initiated and those souls are cast into the lake of fire. So those who have, have departed in Christ are not in heaven now. We speak of the departed saints, sometimes as being in heaven. Technically, they're not, because heaven hasn't begun yet. That's not to say that they are distressed in any way, or unsatisfied in any way, or lacking in happiness in any way. But it is to say that even the departed saints have not yet received the full reward. Even the departed saints have not yet arrived in the, the completely blissful state of existence that we know of as heaven that begins in Revelation chapter 21. So beginning in Revelation 21 verse 1, we begin by noticing how heaven comes about. From verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So heaven begins with sort of this passing away of the old earth and the old heaven. Now, when it speaks of the passing away of the old heaven and the new heaven coming, it's not speaking of heaven in the sense of the dwelling place of God. Scripture knows three different heavens. Called the first, we sometimes call the first heaven, the second heaven, and the third heaven. The first heaven would be the atmosphere, the clouds, the sky above us. The second heaven would be the celestial bodies, the moon, the sun, the stars, planets, galaxies. That would be called the second heaven. The third heaven was what Scripture refers to as the dwelling place of God, which is beyond even the celestial bodies. So uh, remember when Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 says, I know of a man who visited the third heaven. 
meaning the dwelling place of God. So when Revelation 21 verse 1 says that the heavens and the earth passed away and new heavens and new earth were created, it doesn't mean the abode of God passed away. It means the first and the second heavens all passed away as well as the earth passed away. And we also uh, read that the sea was no more. It's interesting to read Psalm chapter 102 verse 25 in your sermon notes which says the same thing. It says, Of old you, God, laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear away like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. Or Isaiah chapter 65, Isaiah says, Behold, or God says through Isaiah, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. So it speaks to us of a passing away of the existing heaven and the existing earth. Or Peter, in his second epistle, chapter 3, writes about the passing away of this heaven and this earth. In fact, he speaks there of scoffers. That's the whole topic that he's talking about, of all these scoffers in the last days that will say, well, when is this Jesus fellow supposed to come back? And Peter answers them by saying, what a foolish thing to say, because don't you know that the earth was once destroyed by water and will a second time be destroyed by fire? He goes on to say in chapter 3, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for the fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness? So there's his application. He says, because everything that you see will pass away and be dissolved in fire, should you really be living for earthly things? You should be living for eternal things. That's his point. But all three of those passages, along with Revelation 21, speak to us of a passing away of the present earth and the present heavens. Peter speaks, speaks of that passing away as a passing away of fire and being dissolved in fire. Now, many times the question has been asked, does that mean that God will utterly everything and recreate everything anew. And that's possible. However, I think it's unlikely that what the biblical writers are talking about is a complete destruction of everything and a recreation of everything. I think that that would do damage to, for example, Genesis 1 and 2, when God creates all things and repeatedly He calls them good. But I think especially it would do damages, damage to places like Revelation, or I'm sorry, Romans chapter 8, when Paul speaks of the new creation, and he speaks of it, it's in your sermon notes, you can read it here, he speaks about how the creation, which is tainted with sin, is longing for this day. It seems unlikely that the creation is longing for its own destruction. I think a, rather a better way to understand this is that when the biblical writers are speaking of a passing away of the earth and the heavens, they're not t- speaking about a total destruction. Instead, they're speaking about something akin to what will happen to us with our resurrection bodies. As we enter into physical death, our bodies will undergo decay and destruction to some degree, to a great degree actually. However, the resurrection, remember when we talked about that, we said that there's a a distinct continuity, a distinct connection between our resurrection body and our original body. They're, They're not the same body, but they're not a different body either. They're both the same body and a different body in, in, in a sense. And so I think that the same thing applies to creation. God will not completely dissolve everything into nothing and start over with a new creation. Rather, 
what He'll do is just like He's going to do with our bodies. He will resurrect it. He'll resurrect the entire creation in a state of taintless perfection, in a state that, that is not stained by uh, the sin that we've introduced into the world. Like a resurrected creation, so to, so to speak. And isn't it interesting that the taint of our sin means that not only must the earth pass away and be resurrected to a new life, so to speak, but also the heavens as well. So in a sense, our sin has tainted Mars and the moon and the sun and the Milky Way. In a, there's a sense in which our sin has tainted all the universe. And all the universe must be resurrected to a taint-free type of existence. And this is what will happen as we see the earth and the heavens pass away. We also see that the new heaven and the new earth will be missing something. It will be missing the sea. The sea was no more. Now those of us who are beach lovers, don't worry. It doesn't mean that there will be no more open bodies of water and no more beaches to go to. Rather, I think it means something much more metaphorical than that. To the ancient Israelites, the sea represented everything fearful and everything unknown to them. The ancient Israelites were not a seagoing people at all. They would spend a lot of time on closed bodies of water like the Sea of Galilee, but they never ventured onto open bodies of water like the Mediterranean Sea. They were not a seagoing people whatsoever. In fact, whenever the Bible tells us of when an Israelite went onto the open sea, it always seems to be a bad story. Jonah or Paul, it just never seems to go well for them. So imagine living in a culture that bordered the sea, yet never ventured onto the sea. That culture would, would develop a real fear of open water. And that's exactly what happened with the Israelites. They were very fearful of open water. In fact, biblical literature will speak of the sea as, as what is to be feared, that which is unknown. Open, the open water of the sea is something very fearful. So John is speaking metaphorically here. The sea was no more doesn't mean that there were no more open bodies of water, but it means that everything that was fearful, everything that was unknown has passed away. And what is left are those things that are known and not fearful. Because everything has been burned up and, and removed and recreated. Look at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So here comes New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Apparently it's already prepared at this point, And it comes down out of heaven to earth, adorned as a bride for her husband. John is then going to focus on the throne. <clears throat> which, by the way, Ezekiel focuses on the throne as well. Whenever we see images of heaven, we see the writers are very focused on the throne of God. We won't talk about that today, but we'll come back to that next week and the following week. But the holy city, New Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven from God. And then um, it seems to come down and be joined to the earth in a way that seems to connect the earth and the heavens in a way that they're not connected now. The earth and the heavens now are disconnected in a real way. We, in, in order to visit the heavens, we need spaceships to do that because they're sort of disconnected. But it seems that the new creation will have a continuity, a connection between heaven and earth. They'll, they'll be joined together in a way that they're not now. But look at verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels, and he said, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away to the, in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So 
The angel says to John, I'll show you the bride. And what the angel shows John is the city. I think that tells us that the city, New Jerusalem, will be where the bride lives. It will be our place of dwelling. We will, uh, we will live in the new city of Jerusalem. And he takes him and shows him this bride. And verse 11, take a look at, at uh, some, uh, the, some of the descriptions of the new city of Jerusalem. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and the gates twelve at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its walls. The city lies four square. Its length, the same as its width, and he measured the city with its rod, with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street was, of the city was of pure gold like transparent glass. So there we see a familiar description of the physical attributes of the city. Let's talk first about the dimensions of the city. From verse 15 again, and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. By the way, I think verse 17 implies for us something about the size of angels. Because it says that an angel's cubit is the same as a human's cubit. Now, a cubit was the, the distance between a man's elbow and his, the tip of his finger. And so, if an angel's cubit is the same as a man's cubit, that implies for us that angels aren't twice our size, that they're about the same size as humans. I think that's an interesting thing that that verse sort of implies for us. But let's look closely at these dimensions, the dimensions of the city. 12,000 stadia. Now, stadia is not a dimension or a measurement that we use very often, you may have a footnote on that page of your Bible that tells you that that distance is approximately 1,380 miles. 1,380 miles. Which is roughly the distance from Florida to Maine. Or roughly the distance from um, the East Coast to the Rocky Mountains. 1,380 miles. Square. So that comes to 1.9 million square miles. Virtually 2 million square miles. Some have thought that these measurements are metaphorical. And they could be. But I don't think that the passage would lead us to believe that they're metaphorical, but rather literal. And the reason I think that is because it seems so exacting in the length and the width and the stadia and the cubits and just how it's talking about the measurements. It seems to be a very exact type of measurement. So I think that we should assume that to be a literal measurement 
of 1,380 square miles square, which would come to virtually 2 million square miles. Now let's put that into perspective. It's a big place, it's a big city. Anybody ever been to New York City? Big place, isn't it? New York City is one of the largest, if not the largest city in the world by area. I'm not talking about just the city, I'm talking about New York City along with all the metropolis area and the suburbs all around it. New York City is a very big place that covers 468 square miles. Or by comparison, Nashville, anybody ever driven through Nashville? That's a big place too. It takes a while to drive from one side of Nashville to the other. Nashville's 475 square miles. Dallas is 340 square miles. LA is a big one. LA is 468 square miles. Charlotte, we're probably a little bit more familiar with Charlotte, 297 square miles. Or the sprawling metropolis of Burlington. Anybody want to take a guess at the sprawling metropolis of Burlington? Covers a, a huge 25 square miles. Puts it in perspective just a little bit, doesn't it? Two million square miles. We could add up the square mileage of all of the cities in all of the world, and it wouldn't even be a fraction of two million square miles. In fact, the entire area of the continental United States is just under four million square miles. 3.8 million square miles. So this would represent an area half the size of the continental United States. If New Jerusalem came down onto the United States, onto North America, which it won't, but if it did, it would go from the East Coast to the Rocky Mountains and from Florida to Maine. So that puts it in perspective. It is quite a large place. However, those are only two of the dimensions, length and width. The The city of New Jerusalem is just like the Holy of Holies, in that it is a cube. Remember the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and in the temple. They were perfect cubes. Ten cubits uh, cubed. So also for New Jerusalem, because New Jerusalem is not only 1,380 miles wide and long, it's also 1,380 miles tall, which is quite high. Put that a little bit into perspective. The tallest structure in the world is, is now a skyscraper in Dubai. And the UAE, United Arab Emirates, you may have seen this structure. It was, it was completed just a few years ago. 2,722 feet, which is just shy of a half a mile. And if you've seen pictures of this, it is an incredibly tall building. But it's just under one half of a mile high. If we were to do that in percentages and compare this to New Jerusalem in percentages, that would represent 0.003% of the height of New Jerusalem. In fact, most of us have flown on commercial airlines. If you've flown on a commercial airline, then you have flown at a height, an altitude of between four and six miles. However, New Jerusalem is 1,380 miles high. In fact, scientists tell us that the Earth's atmosphere only extends up to about 100 miles. Now, New Jerusalem will extend much, much further than even the existing atmosphere extends now. Kind of hard to imagine. We have no reason to believe that the new earth will necessarily have an atmosphere. 
or that our resurrected bodies will necessarily need an atmosphere in which to live. However, it is interesting to put that type of perspective on the height of the new city of Jerusalem. If we were to divide New Jerusalem into stories, 20 foot high stories, which is twice a normal, in fact, that's higher than this room here. If we were to divide New Jerusalem into stories, that would be 396,000 stories. All of them, 2 million miles square. All of them, half the size of the continental United States. New Jerusalem will not lack for space. Space will not be a problem in New Jerusalem. We have no idea how many people will inhabit New Jerusalem. In fact, the Bible seems to say both. If we look at the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, He says, the gate is narrow and few will find it. But then, if we look in places like Revelation 7, we see John seeing before the throne a throng of people so great that he couldn't number it. So, we don't know how many people will be in New Jerusalem. But just for fun this week, I did some calculations. This is wildly speculative, but just for fun. Scientists tell us that there have been about 108, million, billion, I'm sorry, 108 billion people that have lived. That's obviously a guess, but about 108 billion people have lived. If we assume, very, very graciously assume, half of them will be in New Jerusalem. And I think that's a wildly gracious assumption. That's 54 billion people. That would, that would work out to 14 square miles per person. New Jerusalem will not lack for space. It is a city that will have more space than you've ever dreamed of. In fact, Isaiah chapter 65, verse 21 tells us that in heaven we will build houses and inhabit them and plant vineyards and eat fruit. So obviously all of that's wildly speculative again, but it does put, I think, some perspective on the dimensions that we are told that New Jerusalem will be. Now notice also, New Jerusalem has a wall around it. Verse 12, it had a high wall, a great high wall with 12 gates. In verse 16, they measured the wall with a rod, and it measured 144 cubits by human measurement, which is about 216 feet. So the New Jerusalem city has a wall. Why would it have a wall? Because a wall is for a defense from one's enemies, right? And all the enemies of God, by this point, have been permanently disposed of. Verse 8 reminds us of that, that all of those outside of Christ have now gone to the second death. So, why does the city of New Jerusalem have a wall? Well, I think that we would see that New Jerusalem has a wall that serves no functional purpose at all. There are no enemies to protect from in the city of New Jerusalem. However, a wall represents, especially for people in this culture, a wall around a city represents safety, protection from all the unwanted elements outside the wall, burglars, robbers, vagabonds, foreign armies. A walled city was a safe city in the ancient world. And so this speaks of utter safety of the inhabitants. Those who inhabit New Jerusalem will live in complete and utter safety. The wall is not to keep enemies out because all of the enemies have been defeated, but instead it is to metaphorically speak to the residents of the city of a perfect safety. But notice also the gates, verse 12. It had a high great wall, or a great high wall, with twelve gates, 
And twelve gates, at each of the gates, the angels were on the gates, and the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. Three gates on each four walls, each of the four walls of the city. So twelve gates, three on each side. Now, a gate represents access. And the fact that the city has twelve gates represents the fact that there's access to and from the city. The fact that there are gates on all sides of the city represents the fact that God is a God who's called all people to Himself. People from the north, people from the east, people from the south and from the west. God has called people of all, all walks of life to Himself. So there's three gates on each side of the city. But also, I think that tells us very clearly that the city doesn't contain us. New Jerusalem is not our prison. We won't be confined to the city of New Jerusalem. We'll talk about this two weeks from now. But I think that what we're, what we're given is a picture of New Jerusalem is our place where we live, and that's a, certainly a place where we'll spend a great deal of time, especially before the throne. But also, I think we're given a picture of, of coming and going freely, exploring and doing many other things that we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. So we see the gates would speak to us of just access. Um, but let's, let's also look at the building materials from verse 18. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. So we're told of these 12 jewels. The 12 jewels actually follow very closely the 12 precious stones that were on the breastplate of the high priest. So we see some connection there, some continuity. But we also see these 12 gates, each of them made from a single pearl. And I think that it's real easy to kind of get sidetracked here when, when we read these sorts of descriptions. For example, the gates that are made from a single pearl, that doesn't mean that there was some enormous... Um, oyster. That was a giant oyster that God harvested a pearl and made the gate from that. Rather, it's speaking to us of the idea of preciousness and value and beauty. And John is using the best language that he can to communicate the idea of beauty and preciousness and value to us. And so the descriptions that he's giving us are these descriptions of things that we would really be amiss to expect to get there and literally find walls of jasper and streets of of gold and gates of pearl. We would have completely missed the point because the point is not that we're going to get there and have streets of gold. The point is, by comparison to to what you consider valuable now, by comparison, that's like dirt there. That's the point. Because, I mean, let's be clear about this. Does a literal street of gold, does that really appeal to you? Is it really an enticing idea to think of walking on a golden sidewalk? I would much rather walk on grass. Give me a nicely manicured lawn rather than a street of gold or a sidewalk of gold. And so we don't expect to get there and find a literal jasper wall. But we're, 
John is struggling here to communicate to us the idea of preciousness. Those things that you consider most beautiful and most precious now will be commonplace there. Stories told of a very wealthy man who once was insistent that he was going to take his wealth with him. Regardless of the fact that everybody in his life told him you can't take it with you. He'd heard that his whole life. He was convinced he was going to do it. And so near the end of his life, he had his entire fortune converted over to gold. And he insisted that that gold be buried with him in his casket, which it was. And then sure enough, he goes to meet Peter at the gates, you know, the metaphorical pearly gates. He goes to meet Peter, dragging his big old sack of gold with him. And he gets there and he says, to, Peter says to him, what is this? And he says, this is my life fortune. I've had it converted to gold and, and I just make one request. If, if you could just let me keep this, just let me bring this in. Peter says, no, we don't ever do that. That's not allowed. And he says, he just pleads and says, just this one instance, will you make an exception and just let me have my gold? And Peter finally says, well, okay, if you want it that badly, then go ahead and take it in. So as he walks in through the gates and dragging this big old bag of gold behind him, this sort of second angel next to Peter says, what? Why? Why was he so insistent on bringing pavement into heaven? And Peter says, I don't know, maybe he wants to repair some potholes or something. And that story just puts in perspective the fact this is what John is communicating. That which you consider to be most beautiful and most precious here is commonplace there. The, the images of brightness and transparency and beauty, the pure, the pure gold is spoken to us, or is spoken to us as this pure gold that's like glass. Twice, John says, gold like glass. Now, does anybody know what gold and glass have in common? Nothing. Gold and glass are not like one another at all. Anybody ever seen gold that was like glass? The point is, it's not gold as in the yellow metal. It's something precious and bright and transparent. That's the idea that he's trying to communicate. All the, all the connections with brightness that we see in the next existence. For example, Exodus 24. Remember when the Hebrew elders saw God and they had dinner with God? From Exodus 24, they saw the God of Israel. There was under His feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. So consistently, we see this idea of brightness and purity and transparency and clearness. Think of Jesus on, on the Mount of Transfiguration, of the brightness that was about Him on that, on that day. Or Jesus as He appears to Paul on the road to Damascus and the brightness of Him. Or we recall, as we talked about our resurrection bodies, we, we recall the fact that that our resurrection bodies are connected together with the idea of luminance and brightness. And we, we see this picture of heaven as being a place of astounding brightness. Now don't think of that in, as something that's going to hurt your eyes, as though you have to shield your eyes and you're going to walk into this really bright room and you're going to exist for eternity with all the lights turned on. That's not speaking to us of the, of the literal brightness of the place. It's speaking to us of the purity and the goodness and the clarity and the understanding that will exist. All those metaphors of light and darkness, they're consistent metaphors in Scripture of good versus evil. 
of understanding versus non-understanding, of righteousness versus wickedness. Scripture uses the analogy of light versus darkness in that way all over the place. And so heaven will be a place of extraordinary understanding, of extraordinary clarity, of extraordinary goodness and purity and transparency. And that's the ideas that it's trying to communicate. It's not, we're not going to walk into heaven and it's going to be like a giant light bulb. You know, I used to have this image of heaven, of, of this place where on all the walls and the ceiling and the floor and everything was fluorescent light bulbs. Can you imagine what misery that would be? But that's not what it's trying to speak to us at all. It's speaking of purity, understanding, goodness. It's, it's, it's a land of no shadows. You ever tried to read something in a room that's very dimly lit? Low lighting is very good for sleeping. But it's not very good for reading or seeing. Or seeing details and things. Heaven is not a place of shadows. Instead, it's a place where we will not lack in understanding. Heaven will be metaphorically bright and metaphorically clear and metaphorically good and unfrightening. And it will display the... It will be a display of, of beauty that transcends the ability of language to even describe it. And that's the whole point of streets of gold, walls of jasper. The whole point is there is it's communicating to us that that which you find most precious here, it won't even compare to that. And that's why God, I think for one reason, has put into our hearts such an appreciation in this life of beauty, and of things of value, collectible things. You ever, you ever wondered why it is that we are so interested sometimes in collecting things? Or jewelry. Think of jewelry. Why is it that jewelry is appealing to us? Little pieces of metal or stone shaped into shapes and you wear them on your... Why is that appealing to us? Because that points to something within us. It points to an appreciation of beauty an appreciation of preciousness that is intended to point us to heaven, to our eternal home, in which all of those desires will be perfectly and infinitely fulfilled. C.S. Lewis writes that no creature is born with a desire unless a satisfaction for that desire exists. In other words, a baby feels hunger. Therefore, there's food. A duck wants to swim. Therefore, there's water. Humans have a desire for sexual relations. Therefore, God created sexual relations. Every desire that God gave us has a satisfaction to it. And so, we desire beauty. We desire preciousness. We desire value. We desire all those things in this life. And all of those are a teaser for heaven, which will be the ultimate satisfaction for all of those human desires. G.K. Chesterton said that heaven was man's first love, but earth is only a substitute. It's a teaser for it. Heaven will be a place of overwhelming fulfillment of desire. Remember last week we said that hell will be a place of infinitely increasing desire and infinitely decreasing satisfaction? And such that that those who are committed to hell will burn with passions that have no satisfaction available to them? Heaven will be the antithesis of that. 
Heaven will be a place in which every good and wholesome and right desire that we've ever had will be sharpened, will be heightened, will be increased, and then it will be paired together with complete satisfaction for all of those desires. Our desire for honesty, our desire for fairness, our desire for equity, our desire for beauty, our desire for productivity, which we haven't even gotten to yet, our desire for understanding, all of the desires that God has made us with, all of them will be perfectly satisfied there. Now among other things, this should radically change how you live your life now. The fact that all true and noble desires are meant to point us to heaven, that, that should change how we view our life now. If the desires that you have in this life are meant to point you to heaven, then should we be worshiping our desires in this life? Or should we be allowing them to focus our minds, to redirect our minds on our eternal state in which all of those desires will be perfectly and infinitely fulfilled? Richard Baxter said that heaven should color the way we view everything in life. That means that every pleasure that we experience on this earth is meant as a taste of heaven. A taste of heaven in which we should not overindulge in, but we should use that to train our thoughts on the real thing.